Dynasties know that every player counts. To build a championship team with a deep bench, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills. You can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows that over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. We know at Baseball America, we've got a job posting going up. Where are we going to put it? Of course, it's going to be Indeed. And Indeed has the screening assessments that can help the cream rise to the top. You can select for the skills that matter. With Indeed assessments, you can pick from over 100 skills tests and add them to your job post. That way, you can find candidates with the right skills fast. Join over the 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applicants that match your must-have job requirements. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Visit Indeed.com slash Baseball America to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. 2-2 pitch. Swing and a long drive. Deep left. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We've got another great show for you today. We're here to break down what has been certainly one of the wildest weeks in recent memory in Major League Baseball. We had the winter meetings. We had the first ever draft lottery. We had the Rule 5 draft. And of course, within all that, a free agent frenzy that has been truly unparalleled. Uh, More than $1.77 billion dollars have been spent on free agents this week. And that's just Monday to Thursday. We still got a whole Friday to go to add to that total. Uh, certainly a lot to talk about. And to do that, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Jeff Ponce. Jeff, before we dive into this week, uh, I do want to ask you, this was your first time at the winter meetings. How would you describe it through the eyes of a first timer? Because it certainly is an event that's uh, kind of unlike any other. Sure. Yeah. Um I would say that uh, it's like having been on the corporate side and gone to a lot of uh, sales conferences, et cetera, over the years, trade conferences. In terms of like activity, it was like that, almost like supercharged. Um, There's just, you know, a a ton of networking going on. It seemed like at every single corner, once you get inside the facility, but even just around town, um, you go out to get something to eat, walking from, you know, this thing to the next, going back to the hotel, coming back. I just felt like I was constantly seeing people, you know, oh, hey, there's a GM, you know, there's a scouting director, there's a Hall of Fame player or, you know, uh, a recent great um, agents, etc. So it really was just sort of like a, a who's who as you're walking through the lobby. And I think um, for someone like myself that hasn't necessarily been uh, exposed to events like this before, particularly on the baseball side, um, it was really, you know, unique and and sort of exciting and i think the thing that i took away from the winter meetings um the most was just there's a lot of sort of subgenres within the baseball world that you can sort of touch on um you know just in this one centralized place we we went through and did some world baseball classic um work and reporting there um we walked out into the hallway and you know there's someone uh, holding court um Excuse me, the agent's name is going to slip my memory, but uh, Cody Senga's agent is there holding court about Joe Wolf. Okay, Joe Wolf uh, about you know his uh, the ongoing negotiations for Senga and what scene, t- sort of teams he's potentially signing with. Uh, you could walk downstairs, you know, get into a conversation about 
um, the potential Rule 5 picks the next day. There's free agent uh, buzz uh, happening, trades, et cetera. There's just so much going on, um, you know, just within this one centralized location here in San Diego um, that it was, I don't want to say overwhelming, but it certainly washes over you with the amount of information and sort of rabbit holes that you could dive into in any given conversation at any moment. Yeah, it's baseball everywhere. And like you said, at every level, it's not just what's happening in the major league free agents. Obviously, that's what dominates the headlines, but it's international stuff. It's rule five talk. It's agents speaking to the media and players and scouting directors and, and coaches. Just everyone's all around. It's it's kind of crazy. It's just all baseball all the time. And uh, the winter meetings are a lot of fun. But afterward, you're, you're definitely tired. You need to spend a day to just mellow out because it's certainly a lot all at once. All right, Jeff, within that, as we've talked about, this was uh, truly a, a really, really memorable week in a lot of ways on the free agent market. As I mentioned at the top of the show, more than $1.77 billion have been spent on free agents just this week alone. Credit to Maury Brown, Forbes Sports, for coming out with that number. And again, that's just Monday to Thursday. We're recording this on Friday morning. There's still more time for more millions of dollars to be shelled out here before the week is out. We do have to talk about the big one, the big kahuna, Aaron Judge re-signing with the Yankees for nine years and $360 million. It's the third largest contract in Major League Baseball history behind only Mike Trout and Mookie Betts deals. Jeff, before we dive into the you know the inner workings of it, just your initial reaction when you first saw it, what were your thoughts? Good deal, bad deal? Just what was your initial gut reaction? Uh, yeah, sure. It's, you know, um, I think it was not surprised. I, I I anticipated that the Yankees would step up and sign Judge. He's the best player available on the market, best fit for the marketplace. They know he can go there and be successful. You know, I'm one of these people. I grew up in the Northeast. I grew up in these marketplaces. I know the scrutiny that these players face on a day-to-day basis in places like New York. And, you know, I, I think that that's worth it. And I know it's a long contract. He's a little bit older. When you see some of the money that's going out there in the free agency market right now, I think it's prudent. I think it makes sense. And for an organization like the Yankees, keeping your homegrown guy here, your homegrown talent, I think is important uh, for the fan base, but also just for the, the product in the field over the next couple of years. Aaron Judge is about as good of a fit as you could find in New York uh, at this point in time. And if they're able to add to this, uh, great. But um, I wasn't surprised because I thought it was the move that the Yankees really needed to make to sort of go into the next, go into the rest of this offseason uh, um, and be able to make the moves that they need to make to sort of get over the, the the hump that they've been unable to get over in the judge years. Yeah, I mean, look, anytime you see a number like $360 million, your eyebrows certainly get raised. But of all the deals that were made this week, this was not the one that made me go, oh, wow, I didn't expect that. Or, oh, wow, that's a lot compared to some others. Look, this is what it costs to pay for an elite player in the marketplace, whether it's someone you're you're keeping, like the Angels with Mike Trout. You know, for the Dodgers, it was technically an extension with Mookie Betts, but they acquired him and it was essentially, hey, we want to lock you up. I mean, this was a situation where you knew the number was going to start with a three. You knew it was probably going to be 330, 340, probably 350. It was going to surpass the shortstops, the Francisco Lindor deal. Judge is just a more productive player than Lindor. At least he was last year, and there's reason to believe he'll continue being that for at least the next few years. It was always going to be a large number, and it was always going to be a long-term deal. So I think some of the people who were expressing surprise and saying, well, you know, he's not going to age well, this is what it was going to cost to keep him from day one. And as we talk more about, okay, First of all, there's not many precedents for players his size having long careers in Major League Baseball, period. 
So you're talking about kind of a small sample when assessing, okay, how do players of his size typically age? Generally speaking, it's not favorable. You look just in the Yankees outfield, you see John Carl Stanton, similar size, similar build, similar game, and we've really seen his body start to break down. At the same time, what Aaron Judge means to the Yankees in terms of what he can deliver for them in terms of on-field performance, even just the first half of this contract, is monumental. Let's not forget, he had one of the best seasons in modern Major League Baseball history last year. It wasn't a good season. It wasn't even a great season. It was a historic, one-of-a-kind type of season that does not come around very often. When he's been healthy, he has been one of the best players in baseball since his rookie year in 2017. Talent-wise, he is an elite, elite talent in the game, and you kind of hit on it. It's not easy playing in New York. It's not easy dealing with the scrutiny that especially he had to deal with last year. I saw it firsthand standing at some of those press conference scrums. Some of the questions he had to deal with were just ridiculous. He looked almost relieved anytime he was asked an actual, like, competent baseball question. Um, just the glare, the spotlight, and he handled it so incredibly well. This is someone that's a face of your franchise, A, for what he does on the field, but even beyond that how he conducts himself, how he handles pressure, just the type of person he is. Those guys are not easy to find. And that's why when you have one, you do not let them go and you pay them. That was true with Mike Trout. That was true with Mookie Betts. And it's true with Aaron Judge. Is there a chance the back half of this deal gets ugly? There's no question. You know, 37, 38, those last three, four years. But what he'll give you these first four or five should still be pretty darn good. And again, what he represents to this organization, really their only homegrown success in terms of the draft for the better part of the last 15 years, uh, a first-class human being, a superstar player who has shown the ability to, you know, not just be a, a one-dimensional slugger. He hit for average. He moved to center field and played it pretty well out there. He can do so many different things for you. This is what it was always going to cost to keep a talent like this. I did not find this deal surprising. And I think people trying to make it seem like it was this huge overpay or a huge, you know, an unforeseen type of deal. Are people just trying to look for clicks and attention? This is always what it was going to cost. The Yankees stepped up and paid it. And frankly, it was the right thing for this franchise at this time. Yeah, I have zero arguments with that. And I think uh, when you put it in the context, it's actually kind of refreshing to see the Yankees go out and overpay if you want to look at it that way. I don't think it was an overpay. But if, it, if that's the, 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 the side of the conversation that you want to sort of come from, in my opinion, the Yankees are the team that can overpay. The Dodgers are the teams that, that can overpay. It's good when they're out there in the marketplace spending money, trying to be competitive, trying to win. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see some of the, uh, the old George Steinbrenner Yankees come back every so often because they were a fun villain to sort of root against as well. I mean, just to keep in mind here also, the Yankees especially had to have him. Let's just be frank. This is not a very deep Yankees team at all. And as soon as a few injuries hit last year, they went completely in the tank. Aaron Judge carried this team to a division title. I wrote about it in our Player of the Year story, how much he was the one who kept them afloat. It wasn't a team-wide effort. It was him. I mean, here's the stat that just kind of illustrates to me how important he is to this team. Aaron Judge either scored or drove in, 33% of the Yankees runs last year. I mean, this is not a great offense. This is an offense that had a lot of holes, a lot of guys who struggled to make contact. Aaron Judge is the key. If you take Aaron Judge off this team, the Yankees have a mediocre to below average offense and they fall into easily second place and probably third place in this division. This is an impact player who changes the fate of your franchise. And on top of that, he's an A-plus human being. 
this is what those guys cost. This is what the Yankees were always going to have to pay. And they stepped up and did it. And, and as much as, again, there might be some years at the back here where it kind of hurts a little bit, I think at the end of the day, if you want to try and get the best players in the game, you got to step up and pay them. The Yankees did. And really, this was the deal. Among all the other huge deals that kind of made me have the least amount of surprise. The trade Turner and Xander Bogart's deals, on the other hand, those did surprise me. Um, Turner getting $300 million did not surprise me, given we saw what Corey Seager got last year. And yes, Seager's younger, but Turner's just a better player. The 11 years surprised me, though. Taking him into his age 41 season, there's been a lot written about how speed players tend to age better. Uh, and then the Xander Bogarts deal, getting 11 years, 280. Uh, again, the length and the dollars did surprise me a little bit. Uh, again, clearly an excellent player. There was no question he was going to clear $200 million, probably even 225 But 11 for 280, um, those were two deals that that raised my eyebrows more than the judge deal. Uh, overall, what were your general thoughts on these and what bringing Trey Turner means to the Phillies? What bringing Xander Bogarts means to the Padres at the years and money they were brought in at? Yeah, you know, I tend to um, sort of shudder at these deals a little bit. I think we've seen over the years that, um, you know, paying for players with this length of years, the dollars per year, you know, obviously aren't bad. Uh, when you sort of break it down, being under 30 million for either of these guys per year, I don't really have a huge issue with. I, I tend not to have uh, an issue with contracts that maybe pay, overpay a little bit upfront in uh, average annual value versus some of these back, you know, longer contracts that you know tend to sort of feel more backloaded because you might have actual chunks of dead years at the end of them. Um, regardless of how good these players are, expecting anyone to play beyond 37, 38 years old. I think is a stretch, regardless of how good an athlete is, uh, regardless of how good their injury history is, your body just, you know, breaks down at a certain point. Um, and, you know, I, it's not a Tom Brady situation where <laughs> he can sit back there in the pocket and there's going to be a bunch of rules to protect this person from injury. I just, I really don't sort of understand what the Padres were doing with Bogarts. Um, you have Manny coming up next year. He could potentially opt out. There's other options in the free agent market. I thought it was a huge overpay um, and I'll just say on insert this. I was on the flight back uh, to Boston that high and bloom was on uh, Julian McWilliams was also on that flight who wrote a great article actually about bloom and sort of his initial reaction uh, in the moments after the Bogarts news broke, we were in the airport in San Diego about a half hour before the flight took off. And that's when the, the Bogarts news went public about the contract. And uh, I think all of our initial reactions was a little bit of shock in terms of, you know, how long the contract was. Um, Trey Turner to me and the Phillies, um, it's an overpay. It's a long contract. I can't imagine this is going to age very well. This could look really good over the next three years. Um, as this is a team that I think it's silly to say they overachieved. I know we discussed this a little bit during the playoffs, but I do think reinforcements were probably in order and bringing in a player like Turner adds another dynamic to that team, um, strengthens up maybe an area of, of weakness in the middle infield. Um, and I think, you know, changes their face for the next couple of years. Certainly Xander helps the Padres as well. Um, but I do think that Turner is a little bit more of a difference maker. We've seen that, um, you know, Xander, you know, for as good as he's been here, never finished above fifth in MVP voting in any given year. And that was a one-time thing back in 2019 where he hit 30 home runs, was his only 30 home run season. So kind of interested to see how this plays out. Um, but I do think that, you know, Xander was obviously a great player here in Boston. Someone that I watched come up through the minor leagues play for the Pawtucket Red Sox. Uh, and, you know, I'm excited to see him make some money and do well and, and wish him luck. But uh, 
I don't know if it was necessarily a prudent move for the Red Sox to try to match this sort of uh, deal in, in the same way that Judge was for the Yankees. Yeah, you know, the Trey Turner fit in Philly is a better fit for me than Xander Bogarts in San Diego. Sure. Um, but the years I, I do think are going to be problematic. I saw someone make the comparison to Barry Larkin saying, well, Barry Larkin, you know, aged well. This is going to be a similar situation. Barry Larkin played one full season his last five years in the major leagues and had a, a 95 ops plus. Um, he was he was good up through 35. And I think there's reason to believe Trey Turner will be good up through 35. But Larkin's age 36 to 40 seasons. He could not stay on the field. He was not who he was as a younger player, unsurprisingly. You know, this is a deal for me, you know, and there is a pretty big difference between 11 years and nine years. Those extra two years where you're now talking about, okay, instead of maybe three years where things aren't going great, you're talking about five, uh, potentially even six years where things aren't going great. It starts to weigh on you pretty heavily. Uh, but at the same time, the Phillies needed a shortstop. This does make their team better. You slide Bryce Stott over to second with Gene Segura leaving. You look around. This is a really good infield. There's still a talented outfield there. Um, obviously, you know, they could use some more pitching, but they have some on the way. Even though I don't love 11 years for Trey Turner, and I do think it's going to age very, very poorly at the back half. And again, not just the last three years, but the last five or six. He's a really good fit for this team. He does make them better now. And again, if the Phillies can get back to a World Series or win one anytime in the next five years, you swallow and say, okay, it's the cost of doing business. And, and at the end of the day, he does make them a better team. The Bogarts deal for the Padres, um, again, Xander Bogarts is a really, really good player. Um, we've seen this be a problem with the Padres and AJ Preller before where they just hunt stars and say, okay, we'll figure it out. You start moving guys into positions they're not familiar with, they're inexperienced with. And on paper, you have a team that has a lot of big names that look good. Um, but it's a lot of guys playing out of position, a lot of guys not being put in the best position to succeed. Their numbers suffer as a result. And there's depth issues. Um, this is a Padres team that, you know, had some some payroll space. And I do think there's a very strong argument to be made that they needed to use it to spread it around, go get some more starting pitching, go get another bat that they could DH. You know, I understand the first base options on the market were not great. The Padres decided we feel better about signing a player of Bogart's caliber, moving everyone else around. The idea being eventually Tatis moves to the outfield. So you essentially have filled your first base hole with Jake Cronenworth and one of your outfield corner spots with Fernando Tatis Jr. But you still don't have a lot of guys playing at the positions they didn't come up at, the positions that they're not the best at that tends to have a negative effect. Uh, we've seen it happen on this Padres team specifically a lot. It happened very frequently up until really this last year when, again, they put players in their best positions to play, and they had good years for the most part. Um, so that's my one concern. This is still a team that has a lot of other holes that need to be addressed. So I think this is kind of – this just strikes me as a lot of the types of moves that the Padres were making prior to last year. Big name, but – it's going to result in a top-heavy roster with a lot of guys playing positions they probably shouldn't be playing, or at least is not their best position. And there's depth issues. Um, so I, I definitely have some questions about this one. And this is the one that I, I don't like the most. Um, that being said, Xander Bogarts is a really good player. I'm actually going to disagree with you and say I think the Red Sox should have done everything in their power to keep him. Um, but at the end of the day, what's yeah. done is done. And that was a San Diego Padre, and we'll see. Again, does Xander Bogarts make the Padres lineup better? Most definitely for all the Padres' big names. They were 21st in the majors and homers last year, uh, 13th in runs. They needed bats, and Xander Bogarts is certainly a good bat. But I don't love the fit here for the Padres. So of kind of the big, big deals, uh, this is probably my least favorite one of the position players. Among the pitchers, Jacob DeGrom, five years, $185 million. Uh, Jeff, I'm just going to leave it here and say, 
Jacob deGrom is an incredible player. He's also made 26 starts the last two years. Um, if you're the Rangers, this is a very, very, very big risk. Yeah, I think it is. But I do think where the Rangers are at right now, um, and I think with the money that they've spent over the last couple of years, they're showing a commitment to trying to be a competitive team. And I don't think you can fault them for that. So they're an organization that in order to acquire and access a player like this, they really do have to overpay a little bit. And I don't think they overpaid in terms of average annual value. Um, you know, discussions that I had had with folks just, just you know, uh, over the course of the last couple of months about, you know, what, you know, what I would, I would want uh, a team to pay DeGrom. I, I would be willing to sort of do a challenge deal where you pay them, you know, higher average annual value over a couple of years and try to bring them in and see if, you know, he could prove it. Um, I'm sure he was looking for the years. Uh, a team like the Rangers, I think it makes sense to make that commitment and and get aggressive and try to bring in the best pitcher. And, you know, maybe you get lucky. He's fully healthy for three years of this contract, especially in the beginning. And you get an ace caliber starter, which is something that the Rangers really haven't had since you Darvish. And I, and I think that DeGrom, when he's on, is a better starter than you Darvish even at his peak. Um, so, you know, I, I think for the Mets, when you see what they turned around and did, signed Justin Verlander, two years, high average annual value. But I think that's a more prudent move for them and for what they're looking to do to not get saddled with that. They certainly can pay the dollars. They're going to be way past the tax anyway at this point. Go out, do it. And I think you maybe mitigate some of the risk you would have had with a Jacob deGrom. But uh, I don't hate it, but I do understand what the risk is. I just think in the position that the Rangers are in, they have to do stuff like this. And then hope that, you know, over the next couple of years, they could bring up this farm system, develop some players to fill in and have a really competitive roster there in the AL West where there might even be some openings over the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, the problem is when you get to the position of like, well, you have to overpay to get guys, you still end up in the position where you're overpaying for guys. Um, again, Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager are really, really good players. No, the Rangers certainly went above and beyond to try and get them over there last year. And, and last year, both of them were fine. They weren't great. They certainly weren't worth their contracts. Um, still at, at ages where they should be in their relative primes. Seager at 28, Simeon at 31. So already yeah, it's a little bit disconcerting. Now you add another big contract for, again, a player as talented as DeGrom is. He's about to be 35. He's made 26 starts the last two years. Um, that's a very, very scary contract for me and, and one that, Look, the Rangers are, are not an organization that's had a lot of success in any avenue. Um, we'll see if that changes under, you know, Chris Young. I guess you can say they fixed Martin Perez last year, but, you know, John Gray had a fine year. But again, it's not a situation where this is an organization that has a great track record of keeping pitchers healthy, you know, and effective over the long run. We'll see. I, I, I definitely am, am going to be interested to see how this one plays out. That all being said, I mentioned the Bogarts and DeGrom contracts I'm a little uncertain about. Uh, really like the Judge contract. The Verlander deal made a lot of sense for the Mets. Wilson Contreras for the Cardinals I thought was a very good deal. The two contracts that raised my eyebrows the most. The Bogarts one did, uh, but but at least again, I thought the dollars were in range of what he would get. You know, it was 225 230 280 certainly more. But again, you're still talking about the the you know the general range more or less. The two that made my jaw drop the most, uh, the first is Brandon Nimmo getting eight years, $162 million, both the years and the money. Um, again, this is a, a good player to be sure. Uh, the idea that he's going to get 
more money overall than George Springer is kind of shocking to me. And again, in fairness, he has been very good the last few years, but it's a lot of partial seasons. He has played, if you count the short in 2020 season, he's played a full season three times out of seven years. There's a health track record here that isn't great. Again, good player. No one would argue that he's an elite player and he got paid like an elite player. So that was one that that really, really shocked me. I, I thought this was a, a massive overpay. And the one that um, surprised me a lot, and we talked about it as it broke, and I, I sent a few texts off immediately like, wait, he got how much? Was Masataka Yoshida with the Red Sox. So I do a lot of our coverage here at NPB uh, in Asia in general, Baseball America. I've spent a lot of time on the phone with scouts and evaluators really diving into who the the main players are, you know, Masataka Yoshida, Kodai Senga, and Shintaro Fujinami uh, that are coming over the U.S. this year. We had full scouting reports written ready to go in the handbook. And the general consensus on Yoshida was, from evaluators who have a really, really good track record of success and, and accurately predicting what NPB players coming over will do, so everyone agrees he's a really good contact hitter, really, really good hand-eye coordination. There's plenty of bat speed there, you know, good feel for the barrel. There's no question he's going to make contact. He's not going to strike out a lot. There's also no question he's a really bad defender. It's 40s across. It's 40 speed, 40 defense, 40 arm. He's just not a – he tries hard. He, you know, he tries to be fundamentally sound. He throws the right bases. He catches the ball hit to him. But – he just doesn't move well. There's a lot of issues on range. There's a lot of balls that are going to drop that that wouldn't drop if it was an average defender or, or, or shouldn't drop. So you have a good contact hitter, bad defender. None of that's in debate. The question is, how much do you believe he will be able to add power? He hit 20-some home runs in Japan. You know, last three years, he hit 20-plus. But Again, this is a contact bat. It's a lot of ground balls, a 46% ground ball rate in Japan last year compared to a 26% fly ball rate, a 22% line drive rate. This is a you know ground ball, line drive stroke. If he's going to get to power in the U.S., you're going to have to do some things with his swing. Get the ball up front a little more, add loft, and you start changing his swing to maybe taking away what makes him good in the first place. So most evaluators don't believe he will add the power necessary to be a, a average everyday left fielder. Most believe he'll, you know, hit for average, bad defense, 10 to 15 home runs, you know, good player, you know, nice to have 270, 15 homers, good player, uh, but not a, an elite guy. The Red Sox, by virtue of the contract they gave him, clearly believe he will be able to add power. And maybe they're right. It is worth noting that the Red Sox have been very, very active in signing Japanese players. And for the most part, they have a pretty good hit rate on them. Um, so maybe the Red Sox are right, but it's certainly the minority opinion that Masataka Yoshida will add the power necessary to be a true everyday left fielder in the major leagues. The Red Sox made a bold bet that he will, and maybe they'll be right. And we'll all look back and say, okay, you know what? They were right. Props to them. The contract works out. But the expectation from most evaluators is that he won't and that the Red Sox overpaid pretty heavily here. Yeah, and I think the other thing you have to factor in here, um, particularly on the offensive side, is he's a left-handed hitter in Fenway Park. And 55 power hitters don't necessarily hit a lot of home runs to their pull side at Fenway Park that are left-handed. It's really hard to hit the ball deep to right field there because everyone looks at pesky pole and how close that is. It jets out about 60 feet there uh, within about three or four feet. It's, it's very narrow. 
It's incredible. You have to be a 60 plus power hitter to hit the ball deep to right field consistently at Fenway. It's something that plagued uh, Andrew Benintendi ultimately kind of messed up his swing when he tried to become more of a power hitter. Um, so I have some concerns there. I think defensively, you know, fine. If, if he p- plays the caroms off the wall well and he's a smart defender, that can work in left field. Manny Ramirez was actually a fairly good defender in left field at Fenway throughout his career with the Red Sox because he knew how to play the caroms, sort of knew how to play the ricochets. And that's a big part because it's it's shallow out there. You don't have to necessarily cover a lot of ground. He's throwing to the right bases and the arm is fine. Okay. Um, but it's concerning that you're not getting defensive value that could potentially hang in center, which is something that they need right now. um, And a little bit of power. Uh, And, you know, if it was a guy that you thought could unlock power and he was a right-handed pull hitter, fine. Then I could see it particularly in Fenway where even if it doesn't necessarily translate in home run totals, it could translate doubles uh, and double power off of the wall. Um, So yeah, kind of interesting to see how this contract plays out, but it seems like the feedback was um, pretty far off from what he ended up getting in actuality. And again, there's a lot of value in having a left-handed hitter who makes a lot of contact and get on base. I don't want to shortchange that at all. And maybe he shows, you know what, he's not just a 270 guy. Maybe he can be a 290 guy. He's an aggressive hitter. He walks more than he strikes out, but he attacks pitches early and counts. Um, You know, is there a chance where he comes out and he's hitting 290 with, you know, 25 doubles, 30 doubles and you know, about 10 to 15 home runs. You're like, you know what, it's actually a pretty decent player, you know, but it's just a big, big bet that power is going to come. You mentioned 55 power not playing at Fenway. There's no scenario um, anyone sees him getting to 55. Most believe it's 40 to 45 power. And, you know, you're praying it gets to 50 with these swing changes. That's what we're talking about here. You know, there is some thought that because he's such a good hitter uh, and he can manipulate the barrel a bit, you know, he can hit the ball the other way to left field. He did show the ability to drive it the opposite way in Japan, that maybe he can lift the ball, you know, hit some opposite field homers, maybe sneak some over the the monster. But again, it's just a, it's a very, very big bet that he's going to add the power necessary to be even just an average regular. Um, You know, when I was having these discussions with scouts, we talked about what's the right grade to put on him. Most said 45, kind of that second division regular complimentary player, not star or not, not even everyday player, I should say, but you know, again, if you're optimistic, you say, okay, we think he can be a, an average everyday player and, you know, you can put the 50 on him. But again, it requires optimism to get there. This isn't like, say, a Suzuki last year who it was consensus. Yeah, this guy, you know, has a chance to be an above average everyday right fielder. The power's there. The swing's there. He's a better defender. And Suzuki came over and had a, a perfectly fine rookie year with the Cubs. Wasn't fantastic, but it was perfectly fine. But, I mean, he's considered a clear tier ahead as a player of what Yoshida is and Yoshida got more money. Again, it's a different year, different market, but um, we're just going to have to see again, the Red Sox, they are having a very risky off season, letting Bogarts go and then giving more money to Yoshida than anyone else thinks is the right amount. Again, maybe we'll look back in five years and they'll have been right. And everyone, you know, can apologize to, to High and Bloom or, or anyone else involved for their criticisms. We have to see how it plays out. But but there's no question this signing, just after all my discussions with folks in the NPB and Pacific Rim Scouts, um, was certainly more than anyone thought he was going to get. And it just comes back to clearly the Red Sox believe they can help him tap into power because that's the only way 
you see this dollar amount coming to fruition. All right, Jeff. So we have a lot more to talk about still. That was just for agency. We had the draft lottery, the rule five draft. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and get right back to it. Keep it here at the Baseball America podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside Jeff Ponce. All right, Jeff, so we broke down uh, what has been the start of a wild, wild free agency period. There's still a lot of really good players left to sign. Carlos Correa and Dansby Swanson, the headliners among them. But it wasn't just that this week. We had two other interesting events this week. Uh, the first of one was the first ever draft lottery. Uh, as per the new CBA, uh, the draft orders now decided uh, the top six picks by a lottery. And it was uh, certainly a, a new and interesting experience. There's a lot of curiosity about, okay, is anyone going to jump up into the lottery, maybe even get the top pick? Uh, someone that really, really, really needs an impact kind of talent going to fall. Uh, we saw both of those happen to a degree. I want to start with just your general thoughts, though, about draft lottery and its implementation and your overall thoughts on you know whether this was a smart thing for Major League Baseball to do implementing this system? Um, yeah, you know, I I, I sort of enjoyed it. I, I felt like there was some enthusiasm around it to see how it played out. Um, I always think it's good to get people talking about the draft, get people interested in the draft, especially when you can build some runway uh, up to that period. Um, as we're heading into sort of a dead period now, football. Teams are, you know, getting eliminated from the playoffs. So there's some fan bases that might be looking for um, some reprieve or to take solace in the future hopes of uh, their baseball team. So, you know, I always think that it's it's sort of good timing. Um, we've seen it in, in other sports. I've always thought that the NBA did a good job dating back to when I was, you know, in grade school, uh, sort of promoting their draft and uh, promoting um, sort of the importance of the draft and the talent that's available at the top of the draft and sort of the importance of the number one pick. So I think that is good for baseball. Uh, I think it's good for the amateur side of things. I think it's good for college baseball as we're leading up to that season in a couple of months. Um, so overall, I think that it has a, a pretty good impact in the game. I'm somebody that enjoys the draft. Um, but I also like the idea that you could completely tank 
have the worst record in the league, be historically bad, and then not get the number one pick. That, to me, is kind of interesting. It adds some intrigue. I don't think you should necessarily be rewarded for being that bad. Um, not to say that the other teams in the draft lottery are good, um, but I do think that if there was a team that was mediocre, uh, that sort of slips down, I know that J.J. had mentioned that it that, that we were really close to the Red Sox almost getting the number one pick just based on how the system works. It's a lot of math and it's kind of complicated. You can read his article. It's very confusing uh, the way that the system works, but the Red Sox get the number one pick. That would have been really interesting. They would have been really intriguing because they were not a team that necessarily was a traditional tanker last year. And I think if that does happen, it will maybe change things a little bit. Maybe it won't, who knows? Um, but I know as a Celtics fan, I remember the ML car season where they tanked for Tim Duncan and the balls did not fall their way. And uh, it led to another 10 years of uh, unfruitful Celtics team. So <laughs> I can sort of speak from experience as a fan of a team on the other side that, that you know, sometimes uh, it, it, it can be interesting and be a big win for, you know, another organization. That ne wasn't necessarily how it shook out, but there was some shakeup uh, within the top six. And I, I think that makes things kind of interesting. What do you what do you think, Kyle? Yeah, it certainly creates intrigue. I, I think we need to stop with the idea that's going to stop tanking or end tanking. It's not going to end tanking. The NBA draft lottery has been around since 1985, and teams tank every single year. We saw the 76ers go through a full-on tank-style rebuild, you know, straight out of the Houston Astros playbook, and that was with the lottery in place for the better part of Did three years. Did they win a championship, years. though? The Sixers? No, they have not. Uh, they're trying. The yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing. Is I think I think tanking has proven not to necessarily be successful at the level in base uh, in basketball that it has in baseball or in hockey. I mean, you get access to good players at the top of the draft, no doubt. But, you know, I do think that you need to build stability in a program of winning in order to change a culture. And sometimes being a mediocre team on the fringe is almost penalizes you in the current system versus maybe a system where there might be uh, some opportunity for it. Oh, I, I agree I with everything. It entirely, I... But I do think it, it adds another wrinkle. I agree with everything you're saying that tanking doesn't work, but it's not going to stop teams from tanking because they're all going to play. Well, we want to maximize our odds of getting the first overall pick. That's 16 and a half percent. I agree with everything you're saying, but teams are not going to think that way. They're just going to try and do everything they can to maximize their chances of getting the top pick with that. Um, it certainly was interesting. There's no question. It creates some buzz, some drama, some intrigue. And I think anytime there's more, buzz and intrigue around anything regarding major league baseball it's good for the game it's good for just the overall product at the end of the day sports are an entertainment product and it adds an element of entertainment without compromising competitive integrity I i'm good with it um, in terms of the lottery itself and how it played out you know the pirates going from three to one is is an interesting development for them as a franchise and you might think that just those two picks, it's not huge, right? It's not like someone jumped up from 13 to one or even like seven to one, but even going from three to one can pay pretty big dividends just in terms of the caliber of player available. I wrote about this in the story that night. Um, number one overall picks have accumulated almost 500 career war, more than number three overall picks. So there's no question that you can get a different caliber of player at that number one overall pick than you can the number three overall pick. Uh, I also wrote how there have been three number one overall picks to surpass 80 career war. Uh, no number three overall pick has ever reached that number. So just by moving up those couple of spots really does make a, a pretty significant difference just in terms of what can 
um, the Pirates get with this top pick. Now, again, they have to hit on it, but just the opportunity is much, much greater than it would have been at the number three pick. And it, it certainly changes some things for this franchise potentially. I think so. And, you know, I think with the way things have been trending with the pirates and the farm system, um, it's a really good break. Uh, you know, they ended up with a, some, some, a great player last year, you know, in the draft, uh, they had the top player or their choice of, of their favorite player. Obviously it was Henry Davis on the 2021 draft and, you know, the farm system's building a little bit. They got some young talent at the, at the major league level. And, you know, this now gives them access to a player like Drew, uh, uh, um, Dylan Cruz, um, almost called him Drew Cruz. That would have been funny. Dylan Cruz. Um, I, I think that's a diff, that's a difference maker. And, you know, especially if, you know, he, he's a, a fast mover and a player that, you know, potentially could be major league ready within two seasons. Um, you know, I think that fits right within their, their window and, uh, could be a big windfall for him. So should be interesting to see how it sort of plays out. But um, as you said, the difference between three and one is huge for them because now they can choose their own destiny and, and, you know, what direction they want to go in the draft and sort of plan things out with how they're going to spend around their, uh, their sort of eh, spread around their bonus pool. So I find that to be um, really interesting story uh, going into next year's draft and just sort of proceeding how this core with the pirates develops. In terms of the teams that, you know, were kind of the big losers here, right? Uh, you know, the Nationals dropping from one to two. Yeah, it's a difference, but you still, as Mike Rizzo said, have a chance to get a really good player at two. There is a spread. Again, number one overall picks are, are pretty significantly ahead of the rest of the crowd. But again, you still can get a good pick at number two. Um, the team that really just kind of the biggest dagger with the lottery was the Oakland A's. Uh, they had the second worst record in baseball last year. Uh, made no attempt to try whatsoever. They were very transparent about that with the team they fielded. And they ended up getting the sixth overall pick. And the gap between a number two pick and number six pick is, is very, very substantial. This also comes at a time when the A's are in the worst place for a team to be. They're a bad major league team with a bad farm system. Um, the way they operate, they have to hit on their draft picks. And they haven't been. Uh, they just outright whiffed on three consecutive picks. Uh, Austin Beck, Kyler Murray, Logan Davidson, 17, 18, 19. Three consecutive first rounders, I should say. And really, I mean, you go back, their last first round pick to actually become an effective major leaguer was Matt Chapman in 2014. I mean, A.J. Puck has settled in and, and found a role in the bullpen for the A's. That's certainly a, a productive big leaguer in his role. But that's the best they've had since 2014. I mean, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, that's five straight years of first round picks that they failed to get an impact player that they really needed as a franchise. Um, Tyler Soderstrom's first round 2020 looks great so far. That's still TBD, but even just that five-year hole, 15 to 19, um, really set this franchise back. And now again, the opportunity to get a, a number two overall pick, which would have been their highest draft pick since 1998 when they took Mark Mulder. Instead, they dropped to six. And again, that's, you know, six is where they took AJ Puck. Six is where they took Austin Beck. The gap between two and six is pretty substantial. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and especially when you bring up uh, Austin Beck uh, and the sixth pick for the A's. A's fans would not be happy to hear that at this moment. But uh, yeah, it, it was interesting how, you know, the draft lottery in total sort of shook out and, uh, I'm interested to see how it plays out in sort of the next coming five, you know, five to six coming years um, when we do maybe see some uh, some funky things happen and somebody really move up 
high into the draft, uh, which could cause some chaos. And chaos is always fun with the draft. Well, we did see one team move up, and that was the Twins. I mean, the Twins were sure. uh, were set to be outside the top 10. Now they have a top five pick. Yeah. Um, that makes a pretty significant difference. And again, this is a franchise that also has struggled in the draft for the most part recent years. Again, we still have some young players making their way up. The Flash and Prom has had some injuries. But on the whole, when you just look at to date what has happened, again, the Twins had a great draft in 2012, getting Byron Buxton, Jose Barrios. Since then, it, it's been a lot of misses or, or guys who have yet to contribute in the major leagues. Um, they're back-to-back first-rounders 2019-2020. Not good so far. Keone Cavaco, Aaron Sabato, Chase Petty was traded to the Reds. Brooks Lee looked like a great pick, um, but obviously, you know, young guy with a long way to go. We have to see how that one plays out. And, you know, before that, it was, it, again, Cole Stewart, Nick Gordon, Tyler J, um, Brett Rooker. You know, we still have to see what Alex Kirilov and Royce Lewis can do when they get healthy. But just in terms of impact, the Twins have not had a lot of it out of their recent drafts. And now you go from potentially being outside the top 10 to having a top five pick. That's a pretty big windfall for this franchise. Yeah, would have to agree. Jeff, want to wrap up here with what has long been J.J. Cooper's favorite event, but I got to say, you are almost as into it as J.J., and that is the Rule 5 draft. Uh, I did find it kind of funny and interesting that the room for the Rule 5 draft was absolutely jam-packed. So jam-packed, in fact, that Farhan Zaidi of the Giants couldn't get in. He arrived too late. They said the room was at capacity. <laughs> Farhan Zaidi was not able to get into the Rule 5 draft. He had to stand outside. That's how packed the room was um, compared to you know the draft lottery. You know, some media members, some team officials, but not a whole lot of people were there. Uh, again, that's what J.J. Cooper has wrought, as I posted on Twitter. He's made the Rule 5 draft a monumental yeah, event that everyone wants to go to, apparently. Um you know, there were a couple notable picks. Again, Rule 5 picks um, not often make an impact, but we did see uh, a recent class make a big impact with Garrett Whitlock and Tyler Wells. Um, overall, before we kind of dive into individual picks, I want to ask, I mean, realistically, and again, not optimistically, not the 100 percentile outcome, but just realistically, how many guys that were selected in the major league phase do you actually see having a real chance to, to have any sort of substantial role with their team, even if... You know, it's just a, a bullpen role where they give them 50 innings. That still counts as something substantial. Yeah, I would say that it's probably somewhere in the range of like three, <laughs> maybe four, like realistically. Um, personally, I think it's the top two picks um, are players that could stick with their respective franchises. Um, I, I, I've said and stated my feelings on Noda. I've done similar on Ward. Um, it wasn't a total shock. These guys, you know, went sort of at the top of the class. There were players that seemed to be universally discussed as like known rule five picks with every organization that I spoke with, whether they were teams that picked or not, they still do their rankings and figure all that stuff out. But I think when we go through the rest, there's some other relievers here that maybe um, lack some of the versatility and, and pitch quality that I think Ward does. Ward has the ability to really attack um, offhanded batters with, a two seamer and a changeup. Uh, he's got a cutter, you know, and then when in same sided matchups against righties, he's got a really good sweeping slider. He's got a four seamer that he can ride up and in on guys. He can still, you know, attack and give him different looks with a changeup with a cutter. And with that two seamer, he can drive ground balls. He can get swings and misses. I think he's just a really versatile player. And he's also been a starter, which we've seen historically has been indicative of success for 
relievers in the Rule 5 draft. Uh, the other guy that I think could be really interesting and has a, a chance to, to truly stick um, is Gus Farlin, uh, the Marlins pick, and the Dodgers. Once the Dodgers moved him into the bullpen uh, in June, he really flourished throughout the season. He continued to get stronger in that role. Uh, there was a, a team official that I spoke with early in my Rule 5 um, reporting process that said, Varlin, if you look at his numbers and his velocity, his average velocity on his forcing fastball and his slider climbed a half a mile per hour almost each month throughout the season until it was peaking at 97, 98 miles per hour to the bullpen in September with an 89 to 90 mile per hour slider. Um, so I think he's really interesting. You know, he's another guy that was a converted starter. Uh, that sort of took to that role has a lot of upper minors experience, which is another thing that we've seen um, historically points to success and sticking as a rule five pick and then producing a potential uh, positive career war. There's some other guys that have upside, but I think that there's some big questions with them sticking um, the amount of upside they may have in their given role. Um, and, you know, a lot of pitchers that are sort of tweener guys uh, um, where, you know, they were starters Maybe they they've had some bullpen starts or like piggyback starts, but not necessarily as a traditional reliever. Um, so I think there's some questions there, but I would put it at maybe two or three. And I think if I had to place my bets, uh, it would be Ward, Noda, and um, uh, excuse me, Farland, as I had mentioned. One thing that really really jumped out to me about the Rule Five draft this year is. Teams smartly have gotten away from this. Oh, let's pick this upside guy and a ball. We'll keep him on the roster and send him back to the minors and something good will come of it. It just doesn't work. It's it's almost never worked. When I say almost never, I mean, we're talking it's worked like twice out of hundreds and hundreds of picks, um, especially in regards to pitchers. The top 10 picks in this Rule 5 draft all have double A experience or above. And that's important because that means, okay, you have a guy who actually has a chance to stick on a big league roster and be okay enough to keep him on the roster all year. And then maybe from there, he's further, uh, he's far enough along in his development that you can say, okay, then maybe, you know, with another offseason, he can stay on the roster and take on a bigger role. I just think, I just look at this draft and think back to the 2016 Rule 5 draft when the top four players were all guys that had yet to play above a ball. And unsurprisingly, none of them really became much. Um, you know, Miguel Diaz, Luis Trent has carved out a role as a backup catcher on the Mariners, but it took a very long time and a trade from the team that originally took him. Um, well, multiple trades, technically. Alan Cordoba, I remember when the Padres took him, it was very clear that was never going to work. The Rays followed with Kevin Gadea. I mean, teams for the longest time were doing this thing where they were just taking these, these upside A guys, trying to stash them, and it I mean, I'm not kidding. <laughs> to say it literally never worked is a stretch, but it didn't work 99.999% of the time. And it just was kind of maddening to watch teams draft these guys when most years the guys they weren't drafting were better. Max Muncie, Fred Reyes, Jake sure. Cronenworth, all guys who were upper level guys with impact yeah, tools. You know, all these guys weren't drafted, but they were taking these guys in A ball who had no shot of, of staying on a big league roster. And their development was going to be messed up because they just were so, so, so raw and didn't get the development they needed. So seeing teams kind of pivot and, and go for, you know, understanding, hey, let's get guys who have at least double A experience uh, was the smart move. I do think that, you know, I did like the Thad Ward pick for the Nationals. Again, this is a pitcher who was very talented when he's been healthy. 
was the Red Sox minor league player of the year in 2019. I remember getting good scouting reviews on him. The performance was there. The reviews were there. The pedigree was there. It's all there. And then 2020 happens with the pandemic. He has Tommy John 2021, uh, comes back late 2022. But you see enough ability there to, again, stick him in as, as a long reliever type, let him continue to get healthy, move further away from surgery, regain his feel, low leverage situations. And then, yeah, maybe he does end up becoming a back rotation starter at the very end of this. Um, again, Noda can get on base. We'll see, you know, when he gets challenged in the strike zone, what happens. But again, AAA, good defender, gets on base, success. I mean, there's a lot of players here who, again, you at least see the opportunity. Now, realistically, yeah, we're probably talking to three guys stick. Maybe if it's an all-time rule five draft, then the number's five. Realistically, it's probably two or three. Um, I do want to talk about the Noah Song pick, and that was a really interesting one to me, especially because I'm pretty sure I'm the last reporter to see him pitch live because um, I saw him when he was pitching for Team USA during Olympic qualifying, and I was the only reporter there during camp in Arizona. Uh, I believe Andy Bag- Andy Baggerly was there in Japan. I don't remember if he was there on the day Song pitched, though. So I'm pretty sure I'm the last reporter to actually see Noah Song pitch in a game. And look, it was great. This was this was 2019, so it's been three years, but it was 95-96, touching 98. The slider was there. The delivery was beautiful. I mean, he held the stuff. I remember talking to a scout that night, and he just said one word, filthy. Um, he's, he's such a tremendously talented pitcher. But as we all know, he's currently serving in the Navy as a Navy, Naval Aviation Officer uh, with the Red Sox drafted him. There's some uncertainty whether he'd get a certain waiver and maybe be eligible to pitch. Ultimately, he did did have to fulfill his uh, service commitment. He remains in the military. Um, I do get it from the Phillies' perspective because they don't have to roster him. He's actually not subject to Rule 5 restrictions because he goes on the military list. So because he's not going to count against your 40-man and you don't have to have the same restrictions, it actually is an interesting upside pick. Um, Again, it's just... You know, it's tough because he is someone who has not pitched in three years. We don't know when he's going to pitch again. And when he comes back, it'll just have been so long. You, you don't know what it's going to look like. And again, I, I talk about guys without upper level experience. Um, his only professional experience is short season, you know, low A ball, which no longer exists. So if and when he comes back, there's a ton of question marks. But I do get it just again, especially in the sense that he doesn't count against the roster in any way. So mm-hmm. sure, why not? Yeah, I think the uh, I think the one questionable component of it is he needs to be activated onto the active major league roster, or he is um, uh, subject to waiver rules. So he could be picked up by another team, and then I think if he's not then added, I believe he has to be returned to the Red Sox. So uh, as far as I understand it, he actually has whenever he is. That's back, different than what I've seen. We should probably get clarity on that. Okay. Off the military <laughs> list. Cause that's the reason the Red Sox didn't put him onto the military list is they would have had to activate him onto the active roster. Uh, and that's what I had heard directly from the organization. So if that's the case, it's kind of risky because this guy hasn't pitched above short season. ball. Um, so you're talking about a player that's never pitched in full season. That's now going to have to be, uh, brought onto the active major league roster in some form or fashion. Maybe, maybe it's, it's just waivers. If they don't have to return to the Red Sox, I'm incorrect about that, but forgive me. But if it's just waivers, which I'm almost hundred percent positive it is, maybe nobody takes a shot because it's a guy that, Hey, they can't, they can then return him to the minor leagues. He's going to need at least two, a year or two in the minors. I can't imagine he's going to come out of 
naval flight school for three years or four years off an aircraft carrier and all of a sudden be right back where he was same you know crispness of stuff same ability to command um his entire arsenal and then be able to execute without probably a couple of years of ramp up so you know it's a really unusual situation and i think there's just a lot of question marks as to um song situation because it's been so long since we've we've even dealt with this military list from what my understanding was this was something that was put in place when we still had an active draft with no restrictions and players like willie mays were, were then subject uh to the to the military list because they could be drafted do their military service be put on this list and then come back and then so, so here so here's what it is jeff so as long he is on the military list until he is activated off that list he will not be added to the phillies 40 man once he is activated, then he is subject to Rule 5 stipulations, which we knew. But until he is activated off that list, he is not subject to any Rule 5 stipulations. But I would assume that he can't pitch in the minor leagues or professionally until he's activated off that list. Correct. Whenever he's activated, the Phillies are going to have to carry him. Correct. But what I'm saying is it can be two threes. It's not like it's a weird thing where he's Rule 5. He has to be on Rule 5 stipulations this year when you know okay. he's not going to pitch. Yeah, yeah, That's exactly. what I'm getting at. Whenever oh, yeah, exactly. he is activated, of course, then he is subject to Rule 5 stipulations. But yeah. as long as he's on the military list... He doesn't, he doesn't count against the Phillies 40 man. There's no stipulations. He's just, whenever he comes back, then, then is when it starts, but they, the Phillies maintain his rights until then. And again, I understand, you know, we'll see when he's able to come back again. Um, we don't know when that will be there. There is a petition, uh, but we just have to see when it actually happens. If he ever pitches for the Phillies or in major league baseball, but again, I get it good arm you see the situation it's not going to count against your roster this year so why not yeah and just one last point before we sort of wrap up here um on the song thing you know it also could be one of these rule five picks and we see this happen where you know they acquire a player and it sort of gives them some leverage and negotiating power to then acquire that player in a more clean sort of manner in a, in a player trade sort of pick swap or excuse me player swap etc so you know, th this could end up being um, a few more moving parts and there might be a trade or something in the future. So uh, the Phillies are able to sort of uh, maybe return and then reacquire and, you know, have the ability to, to develop and put song into the minor leagues for a year or two and get them ready for major league service time. Dombrowski, you know, uh, was in charge of uh, the Red Sox at the time when they, they drafted Noah song. So there is some familiar, excuse me, there is some familiarity with the player. We will see what happens. All right, Jeff, as we get ready to wrap up here, any final thoughts on everything that happened? Again, more than $1.77 billion spent in free agency, uh, first draft lottery, the Rule 5 draft, uh, certainly a memorable week. Any final thoughts as we wrap up here? All that happened, and all I can say is San Diego nice, tacos yum. <laughs> indeed it is san diego uh i'm a little biased it is my home and uh, my hometown i should say i don't live there now that's what i call home and where i grew up uh certainly is a great city and yeah can't beat the mexican food in san diego on that high note this will uh wrap it up for another baseball america podcast go ahead and give us a review on itunes spotify stitcher whatever platform you're listening on we'd love to hear from you for jeff Ponce, i'm kyle glazer thanks for listening have a good one everybody mm -hmm.